You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. If you would, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn it to the book of 2 Timothy. If you're new to your way around the Bible, let me help you out a little bit. I remember when I started following Jesus at 23, and the most uncomfortable time for me at church is when they called out the book of the Bible. So I sat at the back to make sure no one could see me just flipping through every page trying to find the book. It's toward the end of your Bible. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. So it's back to the left of that. But right after 1 Timothy, you will hit 2 Timothy right before you get to Titus. If you do not own a Bible, we have Bibles on the back table back there. They're free. It's our gift to you. If you own a Bible, don't take one of our Bibles. But if you need one, there's one back there. We would love to bless you with that. There's also some books back there that, that are also free. Uh, there's a devotional. There's some other books, a book on baptism. Since baptism is coming next week, if you have a question about baptism, pick up the book. I'd highly recommend reading through it to answer any questions. Also, after the sermon today, if you have any questions about baptism, I'll be available. We'll make sure that our other elders and pastors are available to answer any questions that you guys might have in regard to that as well. So with that, 2 Timothy, we're diving in. Our main point today is going to be this. Grace from beginning to end. So the main point that I want you to walk away with is this. It's grace from beginning to end. Why did we label and call and title this series The Legacy? The Apostle Paul could have left Timothy with a complete list of many essential things. Knowing this would likely be his last letter, he gave him what he valued the most, the legacy. Not his legacy, but Christ's legacy. He urged him to keep the legacy of Christ's life, death, and resurrection the main thing. Christ's legacy through faith becomes a legacy of his bride, the church. Throughout history, people have talked about legacies, but there's only one legacy that offers salvation and reconciliation to people, and it's Christ. Focusing on Christ's legacy like Paul did removes the burden for us to try to create a name and fame for ourselves. Instead, as Christians, we collectively share the greatest legacy that Christ gave, the most incredible legacy we can give to others and leave behind as one appointing others to the gospel. Paul knew it was important for Timothy to remember the legacy of Christ. Paul knew he would need to suffer for the legacy. Further, he recognized that keeping Christ's legacy would need to be the ongoing focus of his ministry since there's going to be a lot of other pseudo-legacies. As we think about the church throughout history and even the main aim and focus and goal of the church, it's to keep proclaiming the legacy of Christ. It's to be fantastic pointers, not pointing to our own self, to our own merits, but constantly pointing to the name, fame, work of Jesus Christ. The gospel means good news. The good news is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ being God in human flesh and also in the work that he did and accomplished through his work. And so our aim and goal is to focus on Christ's legacy. In an interview for a scholarship years ago, I was asked this question, what's kind of like your greatest legacy? And in that question, I was a little bit confused because I didn't know what to say, but I said, my family. And I said, with my family, I think that kind of lies my greatest legacy. What I simply meant by that was this, is I didn't grow up in a family where it was ever modeled what it looks like to love Christ. I didn't grow up in a family where it was, that showed you what it looked like to love women or love people. And so the very fact that my aim and goal is not to create a massive name and legacy for myself, but to leave with my wife and my children the name and the fame of Jesus Christ, I think that's the greatest legacy I can give to them. And so where I want to leave a legacy is not with my own works, my own efforts, the great things I've done. I want to leave a legacy of constantly pointing my family and others to Jesus Christ. I think a win 
for me and for many Christians at the end of our life is to say that person taught me a lot about Jesus Christ. That person constantly pointed me back to the gospel. And I think that is why we are looking at this letter and titling it The Legacy, because we understand Paul, being short on time, wanted Timothy to keep the legacy going, the legacy of the gospel. Now, with that, we need to understand this. From the beginning of this letter to the very end, Paul has a focus and a word, and it's grace, which is something we're going to look at today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time. Thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for your legacy. It's our hope and goal as a church family, as a church family that we keep the legacy of Christ moving, proclaiming. God, let us not chase after our own legacies, our own name, and our own fame. Let our lives be lived to constantly point to you. Let us know that it's in your legacy through your life and what you did and what you accomplished, Jesus, that we have life, eternal life, but we have forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, love that's infinite poured out to us. Jesus, we declare our need for you this morning. Help us to listen intently and listen intently for ourselves, not for our neighbor, not for our spouse, not for our friends. Let us receive what your word has to say to us. Let it bear on our hearts and souls. Say, let it convict us. Let it grieve us in a godly way. Let it encourage us and heal us as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of the themes that we're going to see in 2 Timothy are going to be the word, truth, and doctrine. We're also going to see what it looks like to approach people in gentleness. But I want to start off with this. What the primary message of this letter is and what Paul is communicating is the gospel. It is the gospel of grace. In fact, Dr. John Stott says this about 2 Timothy. Paul's preoccupation in writing to Timothy was the gospel, that a positive truth which revealed and committed to him by God. Dr. Tony Morita asked this question. He says, what was, Paul's, uh, what was Paul most passionate about? He answers, he says, the gospel. He goes on to say, it was the gospel that Timothy was called to love, treasure, and proclaim. So this is a letter written by Paul, written to a young man named Timothy, but the primary focus of the letter is this. Keep the gospel, guard the gospel, guard the legacy. That's why we're calling it. So our outline through this series is going to be this. Today, we're just going to look at the first two verses in the intro. Next, we're going to look at what it is to guard the legacy of the gospel. Then we're going to look at what it looks like to suffer for the legacy of the gospel. Then we're going to look at what it is to continue in gospel legacy work. And last, what it is to keep proclaiming the legacy of the gospel. Let's read this. Verses 1 and 2. This is penned by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, let's start there. Who is Paul? We know even from our text in 2 Corinthians that he's described as being someone who's not much to look at physically. There's an extra canonical or an extra biblical book that actually describes him, and I'm not trying to be offensive to Paul. This is just how he's described. It's not a book in our Bible, but it's, it's, it's called The Work of Acts. And it says specifically in there that he looked more like a George Costanza. And, and again, I don't mean that in an offensive way, but Paul wasn't relying upon some sort of physical stature in order to make an appeal to people. He, he, he wasn't bolstering himself up or in any other sort of way other than this is a man that actually truly relied upon God's grace for the work of his ministry. It is a man, as Ian was just saying, that, that had a zeal for Judaism. In fact, he was a Pharisee from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was born in a town called Tarsus in Rome. 
And that's where he grew up until his parents likely moved him to Jerusalem where he could be trained by the rabbi Gamaliel. So Paul was a well-trained and well-educated man. Some believe that he spoke three to four languages. Often people believe that he had the majority of the entire Old Testament memorized. Paul had a zeal for Judaism, so much of a zeal that he persecuted the local church, that he, pursued, uh, that, that he persecuted Christ's bride up until he was knocked off his horse. But up until that point, he signed off on executions. He had men and women arrested. This was a zealous man. You have to hear this. When we read and hear the word Paul today, we think, wow, the Apostle Paul, great guy. When you heard the word Paul or Saul in the first century, that struck terror and fear in the hearts and lives of some people. And then once he was converted, they became skeptical. You know what made them more skeptical was that he was constantly arrested and in prison which in this letter, he makes it clear, like, like, don't be embarrassed of me because I'm in prison. Don't be embarrassed of my chains. You, you would naturally become skeptical to people that are in and out of prison like Paul was. So now is he truly converted? Is he no longer persecuting Christianity? And why is he in prison so much? This is who Paul is. The first verse, the first word of the first verse is Paul. That's who he was. And then it says an apostle. There was a group called the, uh, called the Sanhedrin. And, and they function as a Jewish Supreme Court. When they made a ruling about a big decision, what they would do is they would send an apostle, a sent person as their representative. That person carried the weight for the Sanhedrin to say, this is what's been decided. You can't overturn this. This is a done deal. So when Paul says that I'm an apostle, what he's saying is that I'm an ambassador, a sent one, a representative for Jesus Christ. I carry the same weight. I carry the same power as any other apostle because I've been sent by Jesus Christ. I've been sent by God himself just the same way the other apostles have been. It says this, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Why the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus? He's writing from a prison called the Mamertine prison. I think we have an image of that that we can pull up and show you guys. When you think of this place, you need to think of a gross, dark, cold dungeon is where Paul was at when he was writing this letter. A place of misery, not a place you would ever want to be or live. In fact, the Roman historian Seleus said this, the Mamertine prison could have been called the house of darkness. Few prisons were as dim, dank, and dirty as a lower chamber Paul occupied. It's, it was known for its neglect, darkness, and stench that gave it a hideous and terrifying appearance. That's where Paul was at, writing the last letter. So we know and understand this, that when you're down to your last few days, when you're down to your last letter, what you have to say and communicate carries a big, big, big hit. Why? Because if you were on your last few days of life and your family or people that you love the most came into the room, you would share with them what was the biggest value to you. It would carry so much weight because you're like, this is it. This is the main thing. And for, the, for Paul, the main thing is keeping the gospel of God's grace the main thing. We're going to see that all throughout this letter. That's what Paul was passionate about. But he also knew that the promise of life was better than the life that he had right now. You have to understand, if I was in this prison for Jesus, quick story. Let me digress for a second, but, but not fully. When we started planting this church, I knew nothing. This is a miracle. You guys are a miracle. This is a miracle. I was running our books. I didn't have bylaws. I, I, I didn't have anything. Someone asked me how I was recording minutes or who my board was, and I looked stupid trying to answer those questions because I knew none of that. 
Someone from our network said, Rick, the way you're operating and uh, running the books and writing checks to yourself is illegal. And I was like, how do you figure? And they're like, who's withdrawing federal and state tax? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and so he said, not only can you go to prison for this, but you can be fined up to like 30%. So I came home. The church hadn't even started. We had just moved here. I came home and I was Adam. And I'm like, Allie, we're done. Allie's my wife. I'm like, we're done. I'm like, I love Jesus, but I'm not going to prison for him. That's what I said. Those are my exact words. And so this letter starts off with Paul rejoicing and giving thanks for his beloved child, Timothy, and he, and he goes on to thank God. That is not how my letter would start off. My letter would be like, I'm here, and I'm not happy about it. It's cold, it's dark, and it smells awful. I hope you're happy on the outside. It would. I, I, it, the, 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 the reality is, though, and we're going to get to this, is Paul had a deep, 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 deep awareness that anything that he had in this life, he never deserved. He knew that he couldn't lay claim to anything. The breath in his lungs, the life that he had been given, had all been given to him by God's grace, but especially the e eternal life that he inherited, the adoption of being God's son through, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's all grace. Look at what this man went through. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 27 says this. Five times, Paul's talking about himself, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul also said in Romans 8.18, he said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Colossians 1.24, he says this, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul knew a lot about suffering. Paul knew a lot about hardship. And this is important for us today because the letter arrives to us it first arrived to Timothy, but it arrives to us written from the hands of a man who is well acquainted with brokenness and grief. So if you're here this morning and you're going through a time like this, Christian or not, just know that this letter is written by a man who is well acquainted with grief. And so if you're at a spot of brokenness, this is not someone standing on a hill as high and mighty talking down. This is a man who says, I know what it is to suffer. And I know what it is to suffer for Christ. I know the pains of this world, but I also know this. I know the hope of the promise of eternal life that is found in Christ and him alone. Why does he say life? He understands this, that true life is found in Christ. Christ says that I am the bread of life. He says that I'm the living water. He said that I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. We know and recognize and understand this that life is found in Christ. In fact, this is why 1 John 5, 9 through 12 says this. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the, this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, 
And this life is in his son. There is no other way to eternal life. There is no other way to life. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 12 says this, whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. The other beautiful thing that's in here, if we can leave that verse up, is we love to share in the Christian faith testimonies. And we love to share our testimonies. But as we talk about the legacy and specifically Christ's legacy, you need to know here and understand this, that our lives are hidden in the testimony of Christ. The moment you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, yes, you have your testimony, the testimony of man, but the testimony, as the text says, of God is greater. What is it? It's that eternal life and the son's testimony is now transferred to you. Our lives are hidden up in Christ's testimony. Someone said, hey, will you share your testimony? We could say, yes, I would love to share, but also know this, that my testimony is hidden in the greater testimony of 2,000 years ago, a man walked this life perfectly in every way that I could not, lived and died the death that I deserve to die. And that's my ultimate testimony. My life is hidden in that. I'm not defined as Rick Reeves, the son of a convicted felon, as the brother of a convicted felon. I'm not defined by any of those things. I'm defined by a life that Christ lived 2,000 years ago and then transferred to me and said, that belongs to you. You see, a legacy is not only what we leave behind, but a legacy is also an inheritance of something that we receive and something we give. What we receive through faith and trust in Christ is life, life abundantly, the promise of eternal life. You have hope that in the midst of suffering today, that one day Christ will return and you will be with him, reigning in his glory for all eternity. That's the position that Paul takes at the start of this letter. Verse two, he says this, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Please know this, writing was expensive, ink was expensive, Paul is not careless with any word that is put down in our Bibles. Every word has meaning. Every word has purpose. Grace is not this word that just simply means something that we say before a meal. Grace is, is, a, is a loaded term for Paul. It's used five times in this letter. It's used all throughout the New Testament. Grace is the very thing from beginning to end that saves, sustains, and holds us as Christians. Flip over with me, and I know if you have an a Bible on a phone, it's going to look a little bit different, so scroll with me. But look at the very end of this letter. Verse, chapter 4, verse 22. It says this, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Paul starts with grace from beginning. Paul ends with grace. And he understands everything in the Christian life is sandwiched between that. Grace on both ends. It is all of grace. If you actually just look left in your Bible, we can take just a little journey back and, and see this. Look at the way 1 Timothy ends now in, in, in chapter 6. Look at this. He says, grace be with you. If you go back to the very first verse of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse two, it says to Timothy, my true child in the face, grace, mercy, and peace. If you go back to 2 Thessalonians and look at the very last verse, verse 18 of chapter three, it says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. If you flip to the very beginning of 2 Thessalonians, you would understand and see that in verse two, it says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go to 1 Thessalonians, you can keep going back and hanging a left in your Bible through Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, and through it all, you are going to see a theme. Paul starts his letters with grace and he ends them with grace. But what is it? Grace is scandalous from our world's understanding. It looks reckless. There's this song written by Corey Asbury that is called The Reckless Love of God. But if you understand 
what God's grace is, then you understand it to, to, for, from the world's perspective to look reckless because it's not how our world operates. I, I have this shirt on that says GCC. This is, this is a softball shirt for our church's softball team, which being our softball team is in first place. Is that right? No? All right, I, I regret even using this illustration at this point. <laughs> Second place, I don't know, what's the point? I thought we were in first place. Let me go with my analogy or my illustration, okay? So as a first place team, I need you to know this. I have not shown up to a single game. I have not held a single bat. I have not pitched a single ball. I have given no contribution, and this jersey was given to me. Thank you. I have done nothing to earn my spot on a winning team, but I have, I have done nothing to, to, to receive this jersey and to wear this jersey, but it was given to me. It was actually given to me last week after the team's accomplished so much. It's awesome. But the reality is, is I'm wearing something and I, I, I have something now that I can't staple or attach any of my work to. I receive all the work and all the benefits. Someone could run to me around town and be like, oh, GCC, didn't you guys finish first? I'm like, yes, we did. Yes, we did. I didn't do anything. I contributed nothing. What that is, is it's a picture of grace. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of God's love. We don't get to, uh, to attach things to this and to this and to this and say, here, God, here's these things. Now love me. We get and we inherit all the work, all the obedience of someone else's work, namely Jesus Christ. We become co-heirs. <laughs> like, that's crazy. And we can't lay claim to any of the work. Christ did it all. He's like the perfect boss. If, you, if, you, if, if you've worked with bosses before, typically you love the boss that's willing to do the work too. Like anything that Jesus said to do, Jesus in his life did, did it perfectly and accomplished. He didn't just say, go do this and was incapable of doing it. He said, this is what it looks like to live a holy and perfect and godly life. But since you can't do it, I will do it. And as Christians, when we place our trust and faith in him, what we are given is the fullness of God's love, his affections. What we are giving is a right standing with God. We're given the life and the perfection of Jesus Christ by grace. Let's define it. Grace is this, a few things. It's a lavish gift that you can't attach anything to. It's one-way love. It moves at you always in one direction, regardless of what you do. That's grace. This is where Paul starts off his letter. He's like, this isn't just a word I'm throwing out. This is something that shapes your entire worldview. This is grand. This is big. This is massive. This is huge. This will change your life. It'll change the way you live. It'll change your perspective. From beginning to end, the Christian is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. The difference between Catholicism and Protestantism is the word alone. Grace is sufficient. It alone saves. It's also not Mormonism. Like in 2 Nephi 25, it says this, you're saved by grace after you do all that you can do. That's not the message of Christianity. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. That's why Paul starts off with grace. The problem is, is grace doesn't mean much until you know that you need it. The reason why grace had such a massive significance to Paul is because he knew how far, how far he had fallen short. He knew how desperate he was. Let's do this, because this is always fun. There's a great song by a great artist named George Strait. I never asked to raise hands, but raise your hand if you like country music. Oh, that's, whoa, those are God's elect. There you go, right there. So, okay, do this test for me, if you would. Check yes or no to the question I'm about to ask you, okay? All right, that's all I'm asking. 
That's all I'm asking. I'm going to ask a few questions. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? Which would include showing up late for work. Have you ever lusted after a woman or a man? Have you ever lusted after a lifestyle that someone else has other than the one you have? Have you ever been jealous? Have you ever hated someone? Someone who has a different political view or cuts you off when you're driving? Do you pray for your enemies? According to this checklist of yes or no's, if the majority of your answers are yes, I have stolen. Yes, I have told lies. Yes, I have cheated. Yes, I have been jealous. No, I do not pray for my enemies. No, I do not offer grace for the person that cuts me off. If, if, if this is the standard and it's God's standard, then the room, all of us, myself included, needs to recognize this. We fall miserably short of God's holy, righteous, and just standard. It's not like there's a group over here and then there's a group over here. We have to recognize this. The fundamental message of Christianity starts with this, that you are dead, as Ephesians 2, 1 says, in your trespasses. Think about that. You're dead. If you go to a mortuary, no one's sitting around having a conversation talking about the uh, bodies that are like super dead and less dead or anything like that. They're all just dead across the board, doing what dead people do, nothing. That's how we arrive, dead is what God's word says. It also says we're hostiles, we're enemies with God in our minds and in our thinking. So how does a dead person go from deadness to life? One way and one way only. God breathing life into their bodies through the work of the Holy Spirit to see their desperate need for Jesus Christ and his perfection. Grace is how we become Christians. We, 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 we have to get this because a lot of people think that the gospel of grace is that the gospel, transfer, the, the gospel transfers me from uh, darkness to light and then into the kingdom, which is true. But now it's up to me to make sure that I cross my T's and dot my I's. It's all up to me. The problem with that is 1 Corinthians 15 says, it, it's the gospel that has saved you in which you stand, in which you are being saved. Paul spends 18 months in Corinth and he says that I profess to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because we don't have these massive sections in our scripture pointing to parenting. We have some small ones, marriage. We have some small ones, not massive sections. Why? Because God believes that what can speak to every area of life is the gospel of his grace. It can speak to your parenting. It can speak to your relationships. It, it, it can speak to you as an employer or an employee. Grace shapes and speaks to everything in life. That's why Paul said, I profess to know nothing among you, because he believed the cross of Christ could come to bear on everything that we go through in this life and speak to it. He also starts with grace because Paul understands this, that every other religion in the world starts with peace. Here's how you can gain peace through your works, your actions, and your effort. Here's how you can please a God. The God of Christianity starts with grace. God wasn't sitting around bored, needing something to do. He created his creation out of a position of grace. Life and life on this earth is all of grace. I've said this before, our Bibles could be over at page three when humanity blew it. Everything that we have is a story after that of grace. This entire Bible is the story, not about us, not about what we do, not about how awesome we are. It's not a yearbook. It's not a life manual. It's actually a book that's all about Jesus Christ and his saving, redeeming, atoning work that he did on the cross for those of us who could not do it ourselves. It's, a, it, it, it's actually a story of grace, of how a God rescues humanity through the work of his son, not because they're earning it, but because he's good. That's why the Christian life, there's no, I said this before, there's no grace graduates 
A mature Christian is someone that does this. They grow in a deeper understanding of their own need for grace. And they rest and rely them, uh, and throw themselves onto it even more. Grace is the anchor for the Christian life. It's the thing that holds us. It's the thing that sustains us. Just from having a rough morning this morning, showed up to our offices. There was human poop on the stairs going up. I mean, I was just a mess. Be honest, standing up here this morning, I'm still, I was still just like angry. I'm just like, oh. And I was telling my wife this morning, and, and I told our executive pastor, I was like, man, I, I, don't, I feel so angry and, and just mad that I'm not at a position to even preach. And then I remember this, that the ultimate person who never had a jaded heart, who responded perfectly in every situation was Jesus Christ. I, I, we, I cannot stand up here, and we cannot stand on our own efforts and works in Christianity. We stand helpless, dependent upon Jesus Christ. The man that stands up here should be a man that understands that more, not less. The moment that we believe and start to believe that God loves us and accepts us based upon our merits is the moment we've abandoned the gospel of grace. I'm going to show you guys a quick video clip. We've decided for the sake of the language to just mute it. So you're only going to get the visual. I'll run some commentary for you guys though. This is a boy, he turned 16, that's him. His little brother's running the film and he's pretty excited for whatever he's getting for his 16th birthday present, okay? Steven's his name. Steven's being asked, what do you think it is? And he's like, I don't know, maybe a car, hopefully a truck. It is a truck. Not one like his parents drive, but it is a truck. Steven's shocked, he's not happy, thinks it's a joke. His dad lets him know it's not, it costs $200. <laughs> Just wait gets better. It's a whole family. What a celebration, huh? Wow, it's amazing. He's really unhappy. He said some stuff. I'm not kidding in this video. If you want to go watch it later, you can. But he's like, you're going to make me look like a poor kid at school and stuff like that. I'm like, buddy, come on. Oh, yeah. Steven's got a bat. His dad's pleading with him not to do this. It's $200. <laughs> and Steven continues to take the bat to his truck, turns on his dad for a second, goes back to the truck. We can turn it off. This goes on for just like a couple minutes more. This was this kid's response to getting anything for his birthday, to getting a truck. They kept saying you could get a job. <laughs> they kept saying you could get a job and put gas in it, which only ticked them off even more. <laughs> Let me ask you this. How would you respond to something like this? Just, do, do, this, this is a rhetorical question. Please don't answer. But how would you respond as a parent with something like this? What, what would you want to do to Stephen? Let me show you how scandalous grace is. Grace would look like this. Someone pulling up a brand new vehicle wrapped in a bow and then placing those keys into the hands of Stephen and saying, Stephen, here you go. <laughs> we go, no, no way. But the reality is, is if you think someone placing uh, uh, car keys to a brand new car is amazing, what is it that Christ places in our hands? Eternal righteousness and identity that's wrapped in him for all eternity. He places in our hands heaven with him. He places in our hand perfection based upon our list of check yeses or noes. I don't think any of us are laying claim that we deserve that. If we think a car is a lavish gift, then we have a very small view understanding of how massive God's grace is that he bestows on us through his son. All through faith. We get adoption. You, you read Ephesians 1, and you, you can see the spiritual blessings we get all by grace. Now, look, I'm not saying that's the best parenting ticket or way to handle that situation is to pull up a brand new car and shock him with some grace. 
We could have a conversation about that later. I'm saying grace is that scandalous, though. That there's no actions, not anything that anyone could look at your life and, and be like, yes, that. But, but God says, I want you to be a part of my family. And he's willing to pay the great cost by his son's life. That's grace. If you grasp this understanding, if you adopt a narrative of grace, if you understand the gospel of grace, which is why Paul is unpacking this through this letter, it'll change your life. It'll change the way you interact with people. Everyone in this room today, Christian or not, has a narrative that you're standing upon. My question is this, how does the gospel of God's grace and that narrative change and transform your life? It does. Here's how. One, it helps us not be so easily offended, right? If you understand that Christianity isn't self-help, in fact, it's everything but that, it's you admitting that you're helpless to save yourself and you need the blood and the work of Jesus Christ alone, then what we understand is we've all arrived from the same spot of being dead and we've all arrived at the same spot as, as being sons or da- and daughters based upon nothing we've done, but only the grace of God. How do we put up our noses, look down on others and start talking poorly about others? that think different than us, that believe different than us. I'm not saying we have to respect people's political views. I'm not saying we have to respect every idea that people say and do. You might like the fact that I hunt. You might not like the fact that I hunt. But I think what it does is it offers an an immense amount of grace to people without us putting our noses up in the air. You have to be, as Tim Keller says, if if your self-image and self-worth is found in how much you care about the environment, all of your humanitarian efforts, what, what, what you do, the way you, re, you recycle and all those things, you're going to look down on other people that don't do it as well as you. If you're a good old boy, you're going to look down on people that don't work as hard as you and have the same values that you do. The gospel of grace squashes all that because it says you're all here and it's not about you. It's about everything my son has done for you. This is why in Timothy, as we look at themes, one of the themes is truth. Our culture needs truth, but along with the truth, Timothy also is challenged to be gentle to not get caught up in aimless quarrels, but to be gentle in his approach. Grace allows you to be gentle because the moment you forget grace is the moment you start raising the expectations up on everyone else, letting everyone else know how they're failing, letting everyone else know how they're dropping the ball. Grace humbles us because it puts us all at the foot of the cross, recognizing we have the same need, the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. Let me read this quote. I've read it a couple times. It's from J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop who lived in the 19th and 20th century. So let's, let's give him some grace because I don't think he understood anything about being PC. So this is what an understanding of grace is. Man, said a thoughtless, ungodly English traveler to a North American Indian convert. Man, what is the reason that you make so much of Christ and talk so much about him? What has this Christ done for you that you should make so much ado about him? The converted Indian did not answer him in words. He gathered together some dry leaves and moss and made a ring with them on the ground. He picked up a live worm and put, put it in the middle of the ring. He struck a light and set the moss and leaves on fire. The flame soon rose and the heat scorched the worm. It writhed in agony. And after trying in vain to escape on every side, curled itself up in the middle as if about to die in despair. At that moment, the Indian reached forth his hand, took up the worm gently and placed it on his bosom. Stranger, he said to the Englishman, do you see that worm? I was that perishing creature. I was dying in my sins, hopeless, helpless, and on the brink of eternal fire. It was Jesus Christ who put forth the arm of his power. It was Jesus Christ who delivered me with the hand of his grace and plucked me from the everlasting burnings. It was Jesus Christ who placed me a poor, sinful worm near the heart of his love. 
Stranger, this is the reason why I talk of Christ and make much of him. Paul's letter to 2 Timothy is about the legacy of the gospel of God's grace. And we have to know and understand this. It's grace from beginning to end. I'll leave you with this one analogy, thinking about the kid with his truck. Grace is the fuel that runs our lives. You see, a vehicle's no good without fuel in it because it can't go. It can. You're just going to have to Fred Flintstone it or you're going to have to push it. I'm being serious, which is going to get exhausting, and that's what religion is. It's your self-made efforts to try and maintain your rightness before God. Grace is the fuel that drives the engine. The reason why so many people are tired and exhausted so often is because they don't have the peace yet that, that knows this, that I am in right standing with my creator who looks at me, loves me, and takes delight and pleasure in me. Grace is a thing that fuels the Christian life, that keeps it going. And here's the beautiful news. We don't have a, a, a fuel tank by God on his grace that ever drops to half full, to three quarters full. God's grace stays full. It runs on full and it maintains its fullness, not based upon our faithfulness, based upon his. Let's pray. Father, the truth is, is I'm the young boy in that who feels entitled and who feels like I deserve so many things. I deserve people to treat me right when I'm at a restaurant. I deserve people to talk to me respectfully. The truth is, Jesus, you deserved all of that. You had your beard ripped out. You were spat upon. You were the king of kings, and you humbled yourself to a place on a cross. Man, help us see, Father, that we are unworthy and undeserving, but the grace we have doesn't run dry, but it sustains us for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.